Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. There's a place I go in my dreams. I call it the Dream City. I don't go there all the time, but when I am there, I know it, even in the dream. It's one of those zones we're always talking about. A place that transforms every time you visit, but with persistent landmarks. And the most powerful and auspicious of these landmarks, the Grand Arcanum of the Dream City, is the bookshop. The bookshop has changed over the years. The last time I was there, it was all polished wood cabinets and a curated selection. But once it was a vast warehouse with miles of cheap steel shelving, strange old books and records secreted in its endless recesses. In an old dream journal, I found this entry recording a visit to the bookshop. There's an old record maybe from the 1940s or 50s, to judge from the cover design, which is of a louche, East European-looking pianist, all pompadoured silver hair and beetling brows, leaning against a piano. I can't remember the name, but he's supposed to be some sort of occult-slash-mystic guy playing some strange music, like Sarabji, but not really. They're asking $141 for that record. I want it, but not that much. Damned if I know what that means, but I can tell you how finding that record felt, like a message from somewhere I needed to go. The persistence of the bookshop in my dream life, and the fact that I am portentously capitalizing bookshop as I write this intro, tells me that it is not just a place in my imagination, but an archetype that I share in common with those who would listen to such a podcast as this one. To us, a real-world bookshop is an Aladdin's cave laden with treasure, or a temple, a place of transformation where we might find the book that will twist our minds and lives into new shapes. It was at the book corner here in Bloomington, Indiana, that I discovered Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, which we will discuss in our episode today. We do a pretty decent job summarizing this work of philosophical history in the show, so I actually won't say much about it here except to say that this is one of those books that did, in fact, twist my mind and my life into new shapes. Weird Studies itself is partly due to its influence. But for the purposes of this introduction, I really just want to talk about how wonderful bookshops are. And the reason I'm doing that is because Meredith, our Jeeves-like assistant, has created a Weird study shopfront at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash weird studies. There you can find all the books we've mentioned on the show conveniently grouped into one big list and a bunch more niche ones, like Arts Criticism and Weird Studies Beach Reads. Every time you buy a book through our bookshop.org page, you are helping local bookstores, and you are helping us. And here's something that's really exciting. Pierre-Yves Martel, J.F.'s genius musician brother, who composes and performs all our music— is releasing a Weird Studies album this Friday, March 5th, 
In this album, Kareve remixes, reworks, and extends nine of the cues he wrote for the show. What started out as sketches become full-on tone poems of unease. And there are three entirely new compositions that push further into the Weird Studies sound. The cover art is by Thierry Azam, the liner notes are by Your Boys, and you can buy it on Pierre-Yves Martel's Bandcamp page, which we will link in the show notes, but which you can probably find if you just Google Weird Studies Bandcamp. Okay, on with the show. Charles Taylor, A Secular Age, quite the tome. Yeah, we're not doing the whole book. We're doing chapter eight. Yeah, we're doing chapter eight, but I think that we'll probably end up talking about the big themes of the whole book. Oh, yeah. But yes, I guess I should, um, full disclosure right off the bat, I haven't read the whole book. You know, my my introduction to Taylor, Charles Taylor, who is a very, very well-decorated philosopher, very respected, the type of philosopher that the UN invites to speak and uh, the Pope likes to meet, you know? Right. New York Times, notable book of the year, Times Literary Supplement, book of the year, Templeton Prize winner. If you hear a sound right now, those are the palpitations of my rebel heart as I read these, <laughs> these achievements that make Taylor a dubious character in my, in my adolescent mind. Um, so it's a huge book. But I think that essentially he lays his cards down pretty clearly from the start. And so even though we're treating chapter eight, the malaises of modernity, I think that um, and you can you've actually studied the whole book in depth, Phil. Um, Although the whole book I haven't looked at, in a in, in, a, in a long time. Several years. But I've recently revisited the first hundred pages or so. And then the and then this chapter, because we were just doing it in my doctoral seminar. Yeah. And that's what I read as well. Yeah. That part is fresh in our minds. But if ever I say something that's totally false about Taylor because I didn't read chapter 16 or page 750, you just let me know. <laughs> All um, these other chapters, some of which have Lovecraftian names like The Dark Abyss of Time. Yeah, yeah. It's a great book in that sense. It's very imagistic. Yeah, in a it book. is. It really is. My introduction to Taylor was in the late 90s. I took a class. Uh, what was it? I think the class was... Philosophy of psychology? Is that possible? That sounds sounds wrong, but I think that's what it was. It was an interesting class for weird reasons that I won't get into now. But one of the texts we read was The Malaise of Modernity, which was Charles Taylor's uh, Massey Lectures that he gave in the late 90s in Toronto. And um, that little book kind of captures the essence of what would later become a secular age. I think secular age was published 10 years later, if I'm not mistaken, 2007, something like that. And so he was seminal for me because better than any other thinker, although many thinkers have done this, but he frames the whole idea of disenchantment and modernity in a very nice, neat way. And then it becomes easier to understand that idea, whether you end up accepting it or not. We'll get into our, I guess, our own personal reactions to it in the course of this show. And in the secular age, what is his mission here? What's he trying to accomplish in this book, you think? He is trying to 
ask how we got from there to here. And there is, let's say, the world of 1500. The world of 1500 isn't the same as the world of 1300, which isn't the same as the world of 1000. There are complicated adjustments in thought and sensibility that take place over a long stretch of time. But what he is interested in doing is he wants to mark the different stages by which we have gone from a world in which reference to God is inescapable, in which atheism is almost literally unthinkable, to a world in which atheism is not only thinkable, but it's a dominant option. And it's an option for everyone, regardless of how many people are still going to church or, you know, what they say on the census form about their religious participation. Taylor wants to talk about how we ended up in a regime of secularity. And in order to do that, he right from the beginning at the introduction, he wants to say, okay, there's a couple of different ways of saying what we mean by secular. Three ways, right. Yeah. And one is the rough metrics of like church participation, how many people say that they're religious and believe in God, blah, blah, blah. Another is the prevalence of religious reference, references to God in public space, in the forms of civic society and judicial life in uh, occupational life, blah, blah, blah. And also, but more than just in a quotidian way, like actually how religion has been legally pushed to the margins of public discourse, right? Yeah. Contained as a thing that you can be into or not, but not as what it was before, which is the precondition of all functions of society. It becomes simply a domain within society and an elective one. Right. But ultimately, even that is not the main thing that he wants to talk about, or at least it's not how he wants to think about secularity. For him, the most interesting dimension of secularity is what he calls the conditions of belief. Ideas that you have, some of them not even formulated explicitly as ideas. Some of these lie almost more at the level of sensibility or the background. You know, we've talked about the background before, for example, in the episode of Marshall McLuhan. The Stuff that goes without saying, the assumptions and background that inform a culture. It's on that level that he is interested in talking about changes, transformations for the past millennium or so in order to answer that question. How did we get from there to here, from a world in which faith might be in some ways embattled or contested, but nevertheless in which society as a whole is formatted by religious participation to one in which it's not. And so when we get to chapter eight. Malaises of modernity. Yeah. In the malaises of modernity, he's talking about a few basic structures that he elucidates throughout this book. Cross pressure, the buffered self, the Nova effect. Those are maybe the three main ones. Mm -hmm. And 
I find this chapter useful because it actually throws into perspective a lot of what he's trying to do throughout this 800 page tome. What it does that chapter is it it's a it's a phenomenology of what it's like to live in this disenchanted world, right? He's right. kind of running a diagnostic of how the psyche reacts to this secularization. The Nova effect, for example, is the proliferation of spiritualities as a result of the cross pressure between the religious past that we've lost and the, the atheistic kind of the abyss of meaninglessness that we face if we go the whole way in the other direction. And so that weird pressure creates a tension that ends up sending people, like as, as Herman Hesse would say, journeying to the East, right? Looking for new spiritualities, looking for... Right. But the very fact that you can choose any spirituality you want in a way discredits any particular choice you could make because they all seem contingent. They all seem like they could be replaced by something else. And yeah. And yeah. They all seem like something you decided on. And the whole point, surely, of a, a robust religious life is that that's the domain that isn't just your call. Right, exactly. That, that, where that participation is coming from something other than personal preference or choice. And that actually leads me to a minor quibble that I would have with your characterization that's actually not atheism as such that he is going after, but what he calls exclusive humanism. Right. So if I were to give a term, like a hang on, a label on the modern condition that he's interested in talking about is exclusive humanism. The idea that flourishing, that uh, our most basic ideas of what constitutes a life well-lived, that our justification of that, our idea of that, what constitutes a meaningful life, what constitutes an ethical life, that all of that value has to be determined from within what he calls the imminent frame. Purely reference to things that have a kind of... Um, a mundane role in our lives, our work, our families, our friendships. Now, keep in mind, I'm not denigrating any of these things, but the idea that your interests, your enthusiasms, your artistic work, your intellectual work, your hobbies, your relationships, that all of these should be enough. Right. That that is how you derive a sense of value. I remember there used to be a show called Bullshit, by Penn and Teller. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, yeah. The magic duo, one half of which, Penn Gillette, I've heard referred to as the Vegas Dawkins, which I quite like. <laughs> and the whole point of that show was to call bullshit on uh, a variety of bad ideas that might include like conspiracy theories. But as Reddit atheist types, they constantly were turning back on anything that smacked of religion or the supernatural. And I remember Gillette making an argument saying that people who are religious ultimately are ungrateful and greedy because this world isn't enough for them. Right. You know, that all a human being should properly expect from life is life, is their job, is their family and friend relationships, is their hobbies and interests. And to want anything more than this, to say, yeah, but is that all there is, is a kind of greed, which is to me kind of a crazy 
thing to think for all kinds of reasons. But my point is that that is a hard formulation of what Taylor calls exclusive humanism. The idea that it is in fact impious for us to demand anything more than the furnishings of an ordinary life. And what Taylor wants to do is to talk about how we manage to get to a point where that is a default option, not the only option, but it's a default option. So it's not so much atheism as it is simply the idea that a life well lived can be a life whose value comes immediately from things that are imminent to this world, material things, everyday things, concrete things. Could be psychological things as well, like... uh it could be artistic achievement could be one. Uh, it could be, right, yeah, exactly. Right. But there's no background to these things is what the <laughs> imminent frame proposes. The idea that there would be some kind of background that gives these things value would be to jump out of the imminent frame into some kind of transcendent idea by which right. friendships, for example, famously Aristotle said that no friendship can exist uh, without a transcendent object that gives the friendship a telos. You can't just be friends with someone just because you're friends with someone in order to. There's something that transcends the relationship. And you could interpret that in a humanistic way. But ultimately, I think Aristotle, as an inhabitant of an enchanted cosmos, would say that ultimately something like the divine is the kind of great telos towards which all good things in life, all noble things kind of work. They all kind of move towards this transcendent thing, which gives them their value. And you can't ascribe value to things without reference to this telos, to this mm -hmm. ultimate telos. Right. And that's what's gone in modernity, according to Taylor. Right. I have a good example of how things look when you put them in the imminent frame. This was actually a text I sent you once several years ago. When my leg was still healing from a bad break, I was having to take the little dumbwaiter elevator in the music school library. And there's a placard that had been put on the wall of the elevator, a piece of official signage from Indiana University. And this was like a public service announcement with a picture of a laughing student looking happy. Kindness is contagious. How you interact with others affects your health. Acts of kindness, gratitude, and compassion help you and your community feel better. Practice random acts of kindness. And for good measure, it also reminds you to take the stairs where possible, <laughs> which is also good for you. And I took a picture of that and texted it to you and said something like, this is what happens to morality placed entirely within the imminent frame. Because if you want to talk about like, why be kind to somebody? Why show care for somebody who you expect nothing from some rando that you meet in an elevator? The only answer that you can come up with in the imminent frame, at least one that will fit on a piece of official IU signage, is going to be something effective like it's healthy. It yeah. is good for your body. Because it's, good, it's good for your heart. Benef yeah, benefits to your body, that's quantifiable. That is an imminent frame thing. It provably exists in this imminent here and now world, right? Right, right. Uh, but obviously, unless you are really committed to that Penn and Teller worldview where we are going to just run for the hills anytime we sense any whiff of the transcendent entering into our conversation you're probably going to notice there's something a little weird about that. Like, okay, so that's what compels my care for other people? Cardiovascular health? Right. 
like, what if it was actually kind of bad for me to be nice to people? What if it was like a little unhealthy, like eating a bag of potato chips? Then I should just be an asshole? Like this idea of utility. It's clearly the case that it's quite unhealthy to be kind to everyone, which isn't an (laughs) argument that you shouldn't be. But if you say yes to everybody who, I mean, I know people whose lives were seriously compromised by their um, inability to be unkind to anyone. Yeah. But I mean, the point that I wanted to make is simply that, like, if you want to get an idea of what we mean by the imminent frame, look at something that we take for granted, like the reason we would have care and compassion for other people. Just watch what happens when something like that gets shoehorned into the imminent frame and look at how weird it looks. And then you're beginning to grasp a little bit about what Taylor wants to do. How did we get to the point that we are telling our students to be nice to people so that it's good for their heart health? Yes. How did, what's the background within which that doesn't seem really weird? That's something that probably almost nobody who saw that placard thought twice about it. It's totally normal. Yet, how did we end up in this situation in the 21st century where that's normal? That basically is what Taylor wants to ask. Although he's very kind to the imminent frame. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. He's very fair-minded. Um, and, and he's very fair-minded. And he's also, I think that what I gathered, what I was able to glean is that he's ultimately arguing for an imminent frame that remains nevertheless open, that's not completely closed, a kind of uh, a circle with a little gap in it that will let a little bit of something else in. Right. Um, and you've described and summarized his thesis very beautifully. And you've served me the perfect fucking tennis ball that I will whip back with savagery. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Very excellent. Soon, but not yet. <laughs> Just oh, a couple okay. of things. Um, I, I think we need to talk about the buffered self and disenchantment. Um, oh, absolutely. So, when so, you do that. so we, we've got the imminent frame. Okay. So we, I think people will understand that. The imminent frame comes as a result of the rise of exclusive humanism in early modernity. Basically, he traces the roots of exclusive humanism to the religious squabbles of the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the epilogue, he illuminatingly, I thought, brings out the whole debate between nominalism and realism amongst the Christian theologians of the Middle Ages as kind of the central, where a lot of this started. Uh, But we won't get into that. But basically... Humanism destroys the enchanted cosmos in which humanity existed until then. And as different as the year 1500 was from the year 1000, as you said earlier, and as different as the year 1000 was from the year zero or the year 500 BC, all these years, you know, took place in a transcendental kind of cosmos. And he does point out that there are antecedents to this kind of exclusive humanism, the Stoics, for example. The Stoics, the materialist Democritus, uh, absolutely. Right. And that's one of my objections, I think. And although he does recognize that. Um, well, he says one swallow doesn't make a summer. What he's interested in is not the occurrence of uh, some philosophical school that achieves an idea of exclusive humanism, but that that becomes a first order default for all of society. Right. Which I disagree with. But anyways, um, we'll get, well, we'll get, we'll to, get that. to that. I'm we'll sure. get to that. And you can tell me what you think. In, on page 61, he summarizes the change that has occurred quite well. This change from a, a cosmos to a universe, let's say. A cosmos that is ordered, well-ordered, understandable, and meaningful to a universe which is not necessarily meaningful and, and right. not, not immediately knowable uh, rationally. I've been drawing a portrait of the world we have lost, one in which spiritual forces impinged on porous agents. 
in which the social was grounded in the sacred and secular time in higher times, a society, moreover, in which the play of structure and anti-structure was held in equilibrium, and this human drama unfolded within a cosmos. All this has been dismantled and replaced by something quite different in the transformation we often roughly call disenchantment. This is not new to Weird Studies listeners. It's something we've discussed before, this idea of disenchantment, the idea of this, this world that was whole and was broken, and that to be modern is to exist in this broken world. Disenchantment comes from, I think, Max Weber, right? Was the, yes. Yeah. And at the same time as he kind of mourned the loss of enchantment, he wrote a lot about how enchantment gave us meaning and sustenance, a kind of metaphysical or spiritual sustenance. Uh, we need to man up and face the fact that it was all an illusion. And often the defenders of enchantment, the people who argue for re-enchantment of the world to this day, they're not arguing for it on the basis that an enchanted universe is more adequate to reality, but that it's better for human flourishing. Mm-hmm. It, it's not mm-hmm. like people are saying we need to believe in goblins and pixies because goblins and pixies are real, but we need to act as though goblins and pixies are real in order to live in a fully meaningful life. It's kind of the argument you often hear from a pragmatist kind of point of view. Mm. And the way in which exclusive humanism brought about this change is through the development of what Taylor calls brilliantly, and we've talked about this before, you've talked about it quite a few times, Phil, in the show, is the buffered self. And the buffered self is, I personally trace it to Descartes, although I know that it starts before that with the nominalists and William of Ockham and those people. But essentially, Descartes draws a boundary, a line between mind and world, between thought and extension. Mm -hmm. And this boundary closes each of us up into a kind of castellated self, whereas before ourselves kind of flowed out into the world all around us. And it was the, the boundaries of ourselves were very porous and penetrated by supernatural forces and the environment, nature, all these things are kind of intertwined with us. In the modern world, we each live in a kind of atomistic cell, a little monastic cell to each of us. And then the world is seen through that boundary. And that for Taylor, I think, is the, the, the kind of coup de grace that brings about the imminent frame. And that's what he's talking about in this quote when he says that we've gone from being porous agents to, I guess, closed agents. Yep. And the minute we've done that, we've lost our connection to the cosmos. The cosmos becomes alien to us, just as it does in Descartes' uh, meditations when he entertains the thought that the reality he experiences might just be the illusions of a demon that, right. that's been assigned to fool him into thinking there's a universe. Right. Um, so this kind of fundamental solipsism, which haunts all of secular thought, I would argue, is the, the loop that ties the knot of the modern. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. So I actually have a passage to read that is not from Taylor, but is from a book that is now largely forgotten called The Making of a Counterculture by a fellow named Theodore Rozak, who is a historian, a brilliant young man who attained a measure of academic success early and rebelled against not just academia. I mean, I think he remained employed in academia at least for a while, but like rebelled against the assumptions, the epistem that underlay academic work. And 
his publication in 1969, The Making of a Counterculture, was ostensibly about this new thing the kids are into, this counterculture. He's the guy who basically named the counterculture that actually came up with the word. Right. And what he was really trying to do, though, was to understand the counterculture of the time as a more or less disorganized but spontaneous reaction to a Cartesian worldview, a worldview of objectivity. That's really what he was quarreling with and what the book is really about. It's unfortunate that it's sort of dated because it was trying to make statements about what ended up being an evanescent movement. And he was trying to predict how this was going to change everything, which I kind of did, but not in the way he thought. Anyway, there's a chapter in it called The Myth of Objective Consciousness that I think actually really gets at some of what Taylor is talking about when he wants to talk about like the buffered self or when we're talking about the move that Descartes makes. So I'm going to read a passage from this. Just before you do, just in parentheses, I'd just like to say that Descartes makes that move heuristically at the beginning of meditations, but then ultimately, of course, ends up arguing for the necessity of a transcendent God. It's not until later that that part of his thought is snipped away. <laughs> and, and because yet, it turns out it's totally dispensable. I mean, that was what my dad always said. My dad loved Descartes. And he viewed it as a grand betrayal where at the end of this brilliant system building, Descartes sort of shoehorns God back into the picture. My dad always thought that was just a failure of nerve. As I've said before on this show, my dad's position on God was God doesn't exist and he's an asshole. Yeah. So <laughs> The Hitchens position. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, this is what Theodore Rosak says about objective consciousness. He says, objective consciousness begins by dividing reality into two spheres, which would seem best described as in here and out there. By in here is meant that place within the person to which consciousness withdraws when one wants to know without becoming involved in or committed to that which is being known. There are many kinds of operations that can be conducted by in here. In the natural sciences, the usual activities of in here would include those of observing, experimenting, measuring, classifying, and working out quantitative relationships of the most general kind. In the humanities and what we call the behavioral sciences, the operations are more various, but they include numerous activities that seek to imitate the natural sciences by way of tabulating, pigeonholing, applying information theory or game strategies to human affairs, etc. In here may be involved, however, in something as simple as the detached scrutiny of a document, a book, or an objet d'art, meaning the study of this thing as if one's feelings were not aroused by it, or as if such feelings as might arise could be discounted or screened out. And I'm going to jump over some of his development where he thinks about how this manifests in the development of technical jargon that seeks to give you the impression almost that an automaton is speaking, like when you read scientific or academic papers, ideas of pure research and the pursuit of truth. But what he really starts developing is the idea that this sets up a basic kind of experience in the world of the I and the not I. And what he wants to say is that the operations of so-called objective consciousness are seeking always to contract the I and expand the range of the out there. And so what he 
writes is the ideal of the objective consciousness is that there should be as little as possible in here and conversely, as much as possible out there. For only what is out there can be studied and known. Objectivity leads to such a great emptying out operation, the progressive alienation of more and more of in here's personal contents in the effort to achieve the densest possible unit of observational concentration, surrounded by the largest possible area of study. The very word concentration yields the interesting image of an identity contracted into a small, hard ball, hence a dense, diminished identity, something which is less than one otherwise might be. Yet the predilection of in here is to remain concentrated as long and as often as possible. Curiously, this great good called knowledge, the very guarantee of our survival, is taken to be something that is forthcoming only to this lesser, shriveled-up identity. Mm. And so what Rozak is trying to do is to think of this in-here-out-there operation, the alienation of the out-there. She goes on to point out the alienation is complete when you deny mind to what is out-there. Right. You reserve the privilege of having a mind only to yourself. And he points out that how, for example, in sociology, the attitude of the researcher towards human beings as being like bugs pinned to a card or, or, or like yeah, right. marionettes or so on is sort of dehumanizing, but like it's almost inevitable given the basic operations of the self so constituted because you are kind of putting all mental functioning on one side of that line and everything out there, you kind of dehumanize partly because then it doesn't have a claim on you. So you can do, you know, vivisection experiments on rhesus monkeys or something and not feel like a horrible monster doing something unimaginably cruel to a fellow sentient being because you deny it sentience or at least you figure that the sentience is not such that it really compels your compassion. Right. And it's that kind of operation that he's talking about. So like to bring it back to Taylor, you know, Taylor writes in the first chapter of the book on the bottom of page 29 going on to 30. But one of the fundamental adjustments in the sort of like conditions of belief, that background by which we come to believe what we believe, one of the crucial operations that is sort of a key to disenchantment is exactly in this operation of reserving mind only to the self. And so he says, let me start with the enchanted world, the world of spirits, demons, moral forces, which our predecessors acknowledged. The process of disenchantment is the disappearance of this world and the substitution of what we live today, a world in which the only locus of thoughts, feelings, spiritual elan is what we call minds. The only minds in the cosmos are those of humans. And minds are bounded so that these thoughts, feelings, etc., are situated, quote unquote, within them. And once you grasp that simple idea, a simple but powerful idea, you realize how many of the like so-called paranormal things that people talk about Telepathy, for example, or a precognitive dream or UFOs, the idea of like, you know, intelligent beings coming down from the sky. So many of those ideas are almost literally unthinkable to those dwelling within the modern dispensation of the imminent frame because they violate that idea. The idea that there is a mind, for example, to the woods 
that there is a spirit in the woods that might be personified as a dryad or something seems like, you know, woo-woo. It seems like a ridiculous idea. Why does it seem ridiculous? Because we know, we know that things like forests don't have an intelligence. There's nothing resembling a mind in a forest. You, you sort of see what I'm saying. Yeah, that's an interesting piece. At the same time, Taylor argues in his book that it is exclusive humanism and the buffer itself that creates the concept of interiority of an in here. Right. Um, right. So once it creates it, then it starts to contract. We have often complained on this show about how there is a, a full-on attack, assault going on on interiority. And I think that that is a function of modernity for sure, that it creates interiority and then starts to contract it. Yeah. Um, the medieval people or pre-modern people didn't have interiority in the sense that we think of it because the forces that we attribute to psyche were forces of the cosmos, right? So external forces were uh, responsible for all of the permutations of psyche because there was, there, was, there was no, not only was it Taurus, there was just no boundary between psyche and world. They were just, there was one world. And uh, it's the modern West that creates this severance. The table is nicely set now, and the centerpiece of the table, let's just say it's disenchantment. Mm -hmm. This idea yes. that there's been this fundamental change. I was reading Taylor, and as much as I respect him, and I guess we should mention also, just before I get into it, that Taylor is a, a Roman Catholic thinker. He's like very committed to his faith, and yet also very much a modern person. And so the book reads almost sometimes like a private diary. Did you find that? It's like he's I having did. a really intimate conversation with himself, trying to reconcile these things. It's a very yeah. honest book, and he makes himself very vulnerable in it in a very admirable way, I would say. And he refuses himself easy comforts. He does. And he steelmans his opponent, which is always yeah. the right thing to do. The opposite of straw manning, like making... The opposite positions as uh, formidable as they possibly can be. Right, exactly. And I think and that's then, very true. And, yeah. and, and finding out what survives. Unfortunately, I think that what survives, what finally he ends up with at the end is a pretty anemic 
enchantment, if you can even call it that. Like, mm-hmm. let's talk about disenchantment. So, first of all, the whole discourse of enchantment and disenchantment presupposes the falsity or the irrelevance of whether the enchantment was adequate to the real or not. They don't mourn the passing of the enchanted world because the enchanted world was scientifically better at measuring reality. You mourn it because now that we've done away with it, life is potentially meaningless, whereas before it was inherently meaningful. So that's the first thing that I would want to challenge in Taylor. Like you were listing earlier, concepts that are hard for moderns to grok, for example, telepathy or precognitive dreams. What was another one? UFOs. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, both UFOs and telepathy are exclusively modern concepts. They could only have been thought under the terms of an imminent frame. Telepathy is the idea that isolated minds can communicate. The, The concept of telepathy didn't exist before modernity in the way it's framed now, right? In the, because the, you didn't the, need the concept. No, but you did have thought transference. Yeah. You, you did have the idea that thoughts could travel. And, and, and But my and, point is that the very formulation of telepathy already assumes a buffered mind that is yes. master of its own domain and not porous to the influence of others. And so you want to talk about an exceptional condition of telepathy where somehow we break out of what we think of as the normal condition of the isolated mind. Agreed, but modern people believe in telepathy. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's a little bit like religion, like the category of religion would only occur to us in a largely secular society because talking about it as religion, as a domain of life, a little precinct that you could choose to engage with or not as you wish, something that belongs to the realm of the individual's discretion. Yeah. None of that shit makes any sense to like if you've gotten a time machine, went back to 6th century BCE Athens. The idea that there's some special thing called religion, as opposed to simply living in a polis whose inhabitants include discorporeal as well as corporeal entities. Yeah. Like, you would have a hard time explaining the very concept of religion to right. people in such a society right. well, as something bounded and separate. They had the word religion, but what it meant was something like observance. A religious right. person was someone who was observant of the gods and a person who was irreligious is someone who acted as though the gods didn't matter or didn't exist. And there were plenty of those people. Yeah, In sure. fact, if you were to read the, the New Testament or the Old Testament and the, how the prophets were treated or any history book that describes the behavior of people, you would be wondering what the hell was going on. Obviously, people were behaving as though they didn't believe back then as well. Um, yeah. uh, you're right. So that's, that's an interesting point. But just to come back to disenchantment, The idea often in this discourse, and this is a lot of people have written along these lines, and and what they argue is that the gods in the broadest sense, and I'll include God and also the daimons and the fairies and the ghosts and all that and that, let's call that the gods. The gods were once a necessary structural element of our cosmic construal. They were structurally necessary. That's what you were saying earlier when it was unthinkable to live without making reference to God in the Middle Ages. It was certainly unthinkable to live without making reference to religion, but I'm not sure that it's true that atheism was impossible. If you read Thomas Aquinas in the middle of the 13th century, he's laying down, he was another one who would steal man, his, his opponents, and he lays down multiple arguments against the existence of God, and they're the same arguments we have today. Those arguments existed back then. 
And although the state and not the state, but the society was officially religious, it's quite clear that irreligion was a huge problem for medieval people, people acting as though hell didn't exist. Um, Because I think a lot of people didn't really believe in any of it, even then. So I'm not this is just just trying to like to to compromise this idea that there is this other world that we lived in. And now there's this new world that we live in. Yeah. Well, that that's that's the big challenge. This is the sort of thing you have to ask as you're reading this book. Is he overdrawing the distinction? I think he is. I think he is. I, I think in a lot of ways he is too. I mean, my major complaint is that he talks about this process of disenchantment as if it's like a set of subway turnstiles that you go through and that admit no return. Right. Once you're through the gates, then it becomes impossible to reconstitute an authentic relationship to an enchanted reality. And I just think that's completely untrue. I'll tell you why that's untrue. <laughs> it's because belief in the gods was never a structural necessity. It was never an epistemological thing. People don't believe in gods because they can't conceive of the world without gods. People believe in gods because they see gods all the fucking time. Right. Um, and the rise of modernity hasn't changed that. People see daimons, aliens, demons, angels, fairies all the time. <laughs> and, and they don't even need to believe in them to see them. Um, yeah, true. Look at what Jeff Kripal's uh, done, collecting these stories or, or, yeah. or people who have no particular religious beliefs at all will encounter entities that present themselves to them as beings that are as substantial as anybody else in their lives. Right. Yeah. Even though they occur at different levels of reality on different planes. That's right. why we have religion. We have religion because the gods manifest themselves to us. And this is the problem I see in Almost all of these attempts at defending enchantment or defending religion is that none of them, outside of occult or new age circles, acknowledge the reality of paranormal phenomena. Yeah. That's a huge problem. It is because a huge problem. Once you, once you recognize that we live in a world, I'm not saying that those things exist, but I, do, I am saying that people do experience these things. Once you live in a world where those things are experienceable and are real to the extent that anything else is real, that we have no reason to, to a priori dismiss their possibility before we start talking about what the world is, which is an absurd move. Well, insofar as we live in a world like that, we still live in an enchanted cosmos. Jacques Ellul, this French thinker, Christian anarchist, I just read this book called The New Demons that he, he published in the 70s. He also has a kind of three-prong definition of the secular, and they pretty much map onto Taylor's. The first one is lay cessation, and that's the process by which we become a lay society. It's the French way of framing secularity in the sense that you have a uh, that religion leaves the public sphere. The second one he names is um, post-Christianity. It's another way of understanding the secular. It means that whereas we used to live in a fully Christian society or almost fully Christian. We now live in a society that has rejected Christianity. And the third definition or the third way to look at it is secularization. And he argues that secularization is the invention of Christian theologians who in their arrogance had equated religiosity with Christianity. And so when they saw people not attending church anymore, and when they heard the militant materialists making their arguments, just assumed that people were not religious anymore. In fact, we live in probably the most religious age ever. And then he names things like 
our myths and our sacreds. For instance, sex, revolution, the nation state, and uh, what's the other one? Technology are sacred to us. They are actually transcendent objects that we believe in. We don't see them as religious because we're so fully in the religion that we just, just mm. like the medieval Christians wouldn't have called mm. Christianity a religion. It was the world. And then there were the people who saw things differently. Right. So he believes that technology, for instance, technology is just a bunch of different things, but we englobe them all in one single transcendent principle. And we believe in this principle. We act as though it's actually real. And in a sense, it is real as a force. And it's not an imminent force. It's a transcendent force. Same with sex. Same with revolution. There's Marxist revolution and then there's anarchist revolution, all kinds of revolutions, but they all kind of meet in this transcendent object, which is revolution itself. And then when in his chapter on myth, he says that people say we have no myths anymore, but we do. We have two major myths, history and science. And history with a capital H has nothing to do with what actual historians are doing in their work. Just as science with a capital S has nothing to do with what scientists are doing in their work. And yet it's history, capital H, and science, capital S, that guides us and gives meaning to our society. And so he argues that we're profoundly religious and that the question of God has not been resolved. At one point, he argues that the modern secular religion is godless like Buddhism. I don't think that's true. I think there is a very clear God in our religion and that God is anthropos, man. As Taylor says on page 301, he's talking about Gibbon and his irony uh, when he's talking about the past and how pathetic people were. And he says, this tone, like uh, Gibbon's tone, tells us we no longer belong to this world. We have transcended it. Right. We have transcended the world. Man is now outside the world. The in here that remains, that little in here that is the mind of the scientist who measures, is literally outside the world. Mm -hmm. And it is not just like a God, it is God. And our, mm. the process by which we're trying to use technology to transform ourselves into gods, whether through mind uploading or airbrushing photographs or whatever, the kind of like we're trying to turn ourselves into information is the process by which we are realizing the deification of our species. So the God space is still there. It's just that we've moved all this stuff out of it and put ourselves there. And another telltale sign of that, and I'll end on that, is that in the book, Taylor's constantly talking about the supernatural. And the supernatural for him includes God and angels and fairies and pixies and spirits and ghosts, all these things. But to the medievals, the supernatural was just God and the angels and the saints. Fairies and ghosts were not called supernatural by medieval people. They were called part of nature. Well, we, oh, I see what you're saying. Right. Yes. They were yes. not supernatural. Um, and yet... How yeah, do again, we, that compartmentalization, that's our idea. That's our idea. And the reason is we're taking everything that's not us and putting it in a category and saying, all that shit doesn't exist. Yeah. And the buffer itself, which Taylor often describes as a kind of magic spell to protect us against spirits, I think is literally that. It's the way by which we've convinced ourselves that those things don't exist. The idea that spirits don't exist because we don't see them is as ridiculous as saying that electricity didn't exist before the 18th century. Mm -hmm. The argument is a religious argument. It's not a rational argument. So I've got a couple things to say in response to what you were just saying. One, a relatively minor point, is you know one thing that I find valuable about this book, 
there's plenty valuable about this book. I don't want to say yeah. that. Yeah. One of many things. But one thing is it actually allows you to understand certain things like postmodern irony or the all pervasiveness of irony as a rhetorical strategy. Discursive strategy, really actually a, an existential strategy. It's a way that we live, living ironically. And that finds its expression in someone like, you know, David Letterman, the target of David Foster Wallace's long essay on irony and the kind of what he saw as the irresolvable paradoxes of self that are revealed in irony. But you can kind of see all of that stuff, like, you know, a culture of irony as being a cultural expression of the buffered self. That's how you do culture when you are swaddling yourself in layers of bubble wrap to make sure that nothing touches you, that nothing gets in. So that's kind of an interesting thought to Absolutely, me at, yeah. at any rate. And, and, and Gibbon is, he cites Gibbon as the kind of uh, the founder of modern irony. Yeah. Um, it's a straight line from Gibbon to Letterman. Um, <laughs> well, Letterman now feels kind of antique, right? He has a new limited series on Netflix where he's actually being very earnest. And to some extent, irony is a privilege of the young. Once you've had your heart broken a few times, uh, you realize that irony can become a luxury you can no longer oh, afford. That, that's another point Adrian makes is the sacredness of youth and how the young are always considered to be right in our modern religion. And yes, so they absolutely. get, they, they are the ones, you know, if you want the truth, you have to go to the young and, and they, they, yeah. they own irony because our existence is in itself ironic as uh, middle-aged men. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and deeply, obsolete. deeply ironic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about what you were saying about the possibilities of atheism in an earlier age. There's a passage somewhere in this book where he is talking about irreligion or rebelliousness, like to be a rebel in, say, the 13th century. And it makes kind of an interesting point that this buffering, unbuffering thing lies prior to any intellectual decision you're going to make about whether God exists or not. Because if you are an unbuffered self, then you are living in a state of porosity. You are porous to all of these influences and forces, fields of force that exist out there in the world, spiritual forces that could penetrate the self, that could take you over to make you do things that are not in your nature, whatever. And if that is prior to any particular religious commitment, then let's say you are living in a French village and you harbor quietly a belief that the God that your parish priest talks about doesn't exist, that this is all a pack of lies. That thought is eminently possible for you. It's harder because there's fewer places in society for that idea to come from or places for it to be expressed, but it is possible to rebel against a particular idea of God. However, he's pointing out, like, if you are already enmeshed in a world of spiritual forces, then your attitude is definitely going to be one of self-preservation, if nothing else. And if not this God, then what God? If not this God, then something. And he pointed out, he's like, Satanists were probably fairly common 
or Satanist rather than true atheist, somebody who is an atheist in the modern style of like, I believe nothing except what can be scientifically verified, blah, 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 the kind of thing you hear people say. Yeah. That idea would truly be anachronistic to try and imagine back into the Middle Ages. What you'd be more likely Absolutely. to find would be somebody who'd be like, okay, well, if I don't believe in this God, like there are gods and God in the inclusive sense of like fairies and spirits, demons, angels, right. blah, blah, blah. Diamonds, right? yeah. Um, yeah, diamonds. So you might as well put your money on what you consider to be either the safest bet or at least the best bet for you. That might be Satan. It's more likely to be Satan than it's going to be just nothing. I because agree. To, for it to be nothing, you would have to have a fundamentally different idea about your relationship to the world around you. A whole lot of adjustments in the intellectual sphere would have to happen for you even to get the idea that all of that shit has no claim on you. I agree with you, but that's the kind of the point of this, the last part of what I was saying is that I don't believe that atheism in the way you describe it, exists even today. Atheism is just the liturgy of a religion of anthropos. It doesn't just pretend to put man or humanity in the place of God. It actually does. Think about something like natural selection, the theory of natural selection. Like people, somebody like Richard Dawkins. So he argues for the absolute truth of natural selection as the motor of change and evolution in the universe. And he describes famously in The Selfish Gene cultural ideas or cultural practices or cultural realities of all kinds as memes. Basically, the process of natural selection encompasses not just physical genetic mutation, but also cultural mutation. Everything in the universe is determined by it. It's ultimately rooted in the, the laws of physics so that natural selection is just a function of those same laws applied to organisms. Now, what is the one thing in Dawkins' universe which cannot be just a meme? And the answer is natural selection. Darwin has been referred to as a kind of Christ by people like Dawkins for good reason. Darwin is the one who saw through the mimetic illusion. Mm, interesting. So in coming up with natural selection, the materialist atheist has elevated the human mind to a transcendent place that is not in itself subject to evolution. And this is presupposed by everything Dawkins ever written. He's always saying we have to become conscious of our selfish genes so that we can control them. But that makes no sense unless you have raised the human outside of the frame of nature. Mm. Humanity stands mm. outside the imminent frame in atheism. And so an atheist is just someone who believes that the human is God. This morning I saw a guy on Twitter put out a poll, not a real poll, but he said on a scale of zero to a hundred, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the, the tweeter. Uh, on the scale of zero to a hundred, how much do you believe God exists? Zero being not at all, certain he doesn't, and a hundred being certain he does. And somebody wrote zero, there has never been any evidence for the existence of gods. So for this person who is earnestly and sincerely expressing this ludicrous statement, there has never been evidence. We would never have the idea of gods if no one had ever seen evidence of gods. But you are dismissing the evidence of gods, right? You're dismissing the reports and the accounts that would let us believe that there are such things as gods. 
uh, he actually wrote, or any other supernatural beings. Although the idea is that everything we call a god is just a misunderstood natural process. But who can say that? The only person who could attribute to himself or herself the authority to make such a statement about reality would need to be a transcendent object that is completely outside the natural order and able, and able to pass that judgment. There is no such thing as atheism. Atheism is the deification of anthropos. And modernity is the magical procedure and operation by which we have attempted to turn humanity into a god. And we're right in the middle of it still. Okay. You make an interesting argument and I don't, I don't feel like arguing against you because I think you really have put your finger on an, actually a number of weaknesses in his overall project. But nevertheless, I want to try to give some plausibility to some of what Taylor is saying by doing something that he does, which is to ask, he asks us to walk through an account of what happens to us at certain moments in our life, right? Right. Moments where shit gets real. Right. So think about the domain of exclusive humanism and the idea of a life well-lived that is judged entirely in terms of things that are imminent to human life with no reference to anything that transcends the immediately human. Sure. So I'm going to imagine a, a slightly different version of myself, that my family, that my career, that weird studies, all of these things furnish me with a sense of purpose and meaning in my life, right? And when, for example, as happened this week, a Weird Studies Discord opens up and we see people being animated in their conversations by conversations that you and I have, then I feel satisfied by that and that gives my life meaning. Well, what happens when shit gets real? What happens when somebody very close to you dies? Or when you go through a crippling and painful depression or when you get divorced or something, some unimaginable, horrible shit like that. At such situations, you are going to be asking yourself like, okay, so, you know, why do you publish things in academic journals? Why do you do things that you put on your faculty annual report? Under normal circumstances, I can be like, my career fulfills me. It is an interesting career and I derive pleasure from seeing my accomplishments pile up to the ceiling. <laughs> but in moments when you suffer the death of a loved one or a divorce or something like that, then the question of what is it for becomes really exigent. Yeah, but what is all of that accumulation of merit for? Right. And does that touch the bottomless sorrow of someone who has lost a partner, lost a family member? Or lost a career, for that matter. Let's say I do something unforgivable and get fired, and you no longer want to talk to me because of that terrible, terrible thing that I did. And all of a sudden, everything is taken away from me. Right. What now? Does my life still have meaning? Does it still have value? It's when the chips are down that we ask these questions. And then the question of what are all of these domains of human flourishing in the imminent frame, what are they for? That question will inevitably come up against the hard limit of death. What is anything for when we are staring into the abyss of nothingness? And I think that in such moments, we become aware of how flimsy are our commitments. And in situations like that, 
Taylor wants us to imagine in a situation like that, you will hunger for transcendence. And your argument that like actually we've already created a kind of a, a sneaky covert transcendence in deifying Anthropos, I wouldn't disagree with you on that. But the question is, does that give us comfort at those moments? Does that serve as a telos of our existence? No, it does not. And in not fact, yet. the not no, yet. Not ever. Like right well, now, according I think you can see the wholesale collapse of this metaphysical project in the total lack of confidence of everybody except for Stephen Pinker about this project. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. What, what, St what Peter Sloterdijk amusingly refers to the Amish of postmodernism. <laughs> but I, I, I completely agree. The problem is that we haven't yet become the gods we think we are. We haven't yet earned the right to say there has never been any evidence that there are supernatural beings other than humans, of course, because humans, if they're able to make that pronouncement, are obviously supernatural beings. And so what you see in our world, it's funny because people have uh, disparaged and criticized Christianity for its hatred of the body, right? It's uh, dualistic rejection of the body. Where, in fact, I think that you couldn't ask for a more body-hating society than our contemporary one. From everywhere, as I was saying earlier, from airbrushing photographs. And now, like, there's a little fucking thing I can click and zoom to make myself look younger for you. All the way to the transhumanist dis hatred of what they I'm call... I'm using it right now. I'm actually 87 <laughs> years old. <laughs> The, uh, you the, never knew this, but you know, <laughs> our relationship lying, is entirely mediated. You're lying in a hospital bed with an IV this whole time. <laughs> and it's just it's like, right. it's like a freaking machine that's talking. You're just like transmitting, like, like uh, what's his name? Stephen Hawking. You're just looking at, you know, letters There's on a There's a nurse key. wiping my incontinent <laughs> ass right now, as a matter of fact. But Sorry. all the way, I always oh. have to take it to some gross place. I'm basically 12 years that's old. Why, that's why I love Actually, you. that would be the simulation. Like if you actually realize that, you know, the Zoom window you see of me is a simulation. What lies behind the simulation is a gross 12-year-old boy. <laughs> right. So, so um, anyway, sorry. Behind the old, say, yeah. I was going to say all the way to the transhumanist belief that we'll upload our minds and be rid of this wetware that we're, uh, we've been condemned to living in. This entire sentiment, which Eric Vogelin called Gnosticism in a very particular sense, this modern Gnosticism, which is the true hatred of the body in the sense of wanting to transcend the limitations of physical embodiment completely, of corporeality, of shedding this corporeality and existing. All this is, is I agree, is a futile project. I don't think it will ever succeed. I think that it's, it rests on the flimsiest basis possible philosophically. It's basically the same belief, like the idea that you could upload your mind is as ridiculous as the idea that you capture someone's soul by taking their photograph, which supposedly mm. certain uh, so-called primitive tribes believed in the 19th century when people showed up with cameras. Um, I don't think I don't even think they were that dumb to believe that. But the transhumanists are. Uh, oh, so so like but so I think you're right. It doesn't fulfill its promise because we're not gods.
Well, I want to talk a little bit more about cross-pressure in this condition, like that when shit gets real thing, where we're confronted with the death of a loved one or the death of our hopes or something really heavy. And all of a sudden, all of those things that keep us going ordinarily in the imminent frame no longer provide a satisfactory answer to the question, what is it all for, right? Right. And so like in that moment, you might look at religion as <laughs> that's the grass is greener side, right? You right. want that. But then at the same time, if you are a religious person, you might just as easily in the very same moment uh, or, or under the same circumstances, losing somebody close to you, rage against God and raging against God and saying there was never a God at all is always a possibility for you and a possibility that was not there for people, you know, in the year 1300 or mm -hmm. whatever. And then, and then at that point, your faith might flip very easily from belief to total unbelief. But the point is not so much do you go from belief to unbelief or unbelief to belief? The point is that no matter where you are, your commitments are fragilized by the existence of other things that are always pushing against it. That's the cross pressure. Wherever you are, there's pressure coming from somewhere else that is derealizing and unsettling your commitments. Yeah. It kind of the analogy I use is the what is supposedly a torture device that uh, they used to have in the Tower of London. I don't know if this is actually true. It was called the Room of Little Ease. The Cell of Little Yeah, I, I read or about the, it Or recently. the Cell of Little Ease. It yeah. did exist, yeah. Yeah, which is a room cunningly constructed in such a way that you can't lie down, you can't sit down, you can't stand up, you can't get in any sustainable posture. And so you're constantly moving from one posture to another. So you'll try lying down, but after a few minutes, you're aching. So you try to sit up, but you can't. So after a couple of minutes, you're aching. And so like, basically, there's no settled place to remain. And this idea of cross pressure is basically the spiritual condition of little ease. And his argument is basically that we are in a position where the pluralism of modern society, the fact that we have made religion, as I say, an elective thing, but also the peculiar condition of exclusive humanism leads to this kind of fragilized condition where we can never be comfortable in the world. And I think there's a lot of truth to that critique. I think there's a truth to it. Absolutely. But I think that it's true for a small minority of people. That small minority being very vocal, educated, and given to publishing works of philosophy and whatnot uh, are very loud and present. But I think that, and one of the points that Elul makes in his book is how profoundly religious and even kind of almost gullible uh, most people are when it comes to believing in supernatural entities. He goes and lists the number of astrologers working in Paris at the time he wrote the book in the early 70s, how many people read The Morning of the Magicians, how many people visit gurus. And I guess Taylor is saying that this proliferation of spiritualities in the plural, yeah. is itself a sign of our malaise. Yes, what he calls the Nova effect. An right. endless sequence of third ways of new options that supposedly transcend this stale standoff between exclusive humanism and traditional religion. But the point is that none of those end up being sustainable. They're all just like different possible yes. moves. And it's the phenomenon of the proliferation of these third ways that is itself the phenomenon of cross pressure. Right. And I agree that that's the case for a lot of, but I think it comes down to 
the old definition of religion, the definition that the Romans used, which was religion meaning observance. I think that within a particular congregation of religious practitioners, you'll have some people who are religious and some people who are not religious in that congregation. And I think that the unease that you feel when you've just been shopping for spiritualities and just the fact that you move from that spirituality to this one is in itself kind of serves to discredit this new one and the next one you'll go to. Yeah, because it's just your idea. It's just a choice that you made. And if it gains value, it has to be value from something more than just sort of like the same process of thought that goes into buying a new pair of jeans. But isn't it possible to conceive of a deeper spirituality that would include and even require a kind of multiplicity of spiritual paths? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I actually think this is the great thing that he doesn't really take seriously enough that would have solved I mean, it's kind of a solution. The problem is just like accepting pluralism. I'm sorry, I totally interrupted you, but you just got to somewhere that I wanted to go. Go, go for it. No, no, you. you. But well, the the thing is that that's the thing. Isn't it possible that there are many paths? I mean, the idea that there are many ways of apprehending the divine is something, first of all, that was very easy for the Greeks in Alexandria in Northern Egypt to understand. It's funny because I was thinking about this because I was reading about Alexandria specifically. And then he's describing the kind of Nova effect in the late 18th, early 19th century when it really got going in in Europe. But I think that the Nova effect was definitely there. If you look at all of those uh, biographies of Plotinus and Porphyry of Tyre and Iamblichus and these guys, these Neoplatonists, they all felt this crazy anxiety about finding the right teacher. They didn't have the idea of creed. What metaphysics will I adopt? But who is the one who will teach me the truth? And that teacher Mm. is wrong, but this teacher. So they had the same anxiety Mm. of having to select in a very cosmopolitan city like Alexandria or Rome at the time, the burden of choice was upon them. They did have a kind of Nova effect. And in fact, Christianity itself evolved out of that Nova effect. Yes. It's an eclectic faith in the sense that it, it draws on many different traditions to try to come to some kind of partially even a compromise. And this went on when the Christian missionaries were Christianizing Northern Europe and absorbing local religion into the construct of Christianity, much like the Romans had done before with their own state religion. Yeah. I feel like he doesn't spend enough time saying why our condition is different from late imperial Rome. Like the condition of like Rome's Eastern provinces before Christianity became state religion. Right. Where it's just like the ferment of the Eastern Mediterranean from which we get the Hermetica. It's just like this flood of like mystery religions from Egypt and Platonic ideas from Greece and Christian ideas from the Levant and et cetera, et cetera. All of these different inputs. And the thing is that in the daily life of people living in cities in the uh, Roman Empire, people are living with multiple gods, multiple religions. And why is that a different situation from our supposedly uniquely cross-pressured modernity? I don't know, because There's, among them, there are also those who say that the gods have no effect on the world, like Democritus or the Stoics. Yeah. Right? Now, there is a passage in the Malaises of Modernity where he kind of gets at this, but I find this very unsatisfying. This is on the bottom of 
308. Some people indeed want to reject the first way of framing the issue, the one thing needful way. Right. The way of post-axial culture. So he's talking about Carly Asper's famous distinction of like axial age religions and the idea that the axial religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism. Uh, Zoroastrianism. Yeah, Zoroastrianism, that these all tend to go towards some idea of the one thing needful. And this is true. The one thing needful is very different in Zen Buddhism as against Catholicism. But and yet there is in both the one thing needful. Right. And yes. and he's pointing out, it's like it is possible to dispense with that and say, well, what about living in a thoroughly polytheistic plural world? And so he continues, we shouldn't try to force life into a single overriding purpose. We should be suspicious of questions about the meaning of life. These people, meaning people who would make this argument, which would include me, want to take up an anti-axial position. They want to rehabilitate paganism or polytheism. But whatever one stand on this polemic, the malaise is felt on both these levels, and we can all recognize what is going on when it is. Right. I find this very unsatisfying because he's basically like, yeah, but you still feel shitty all the time, don't you? And I'm like, you want to know something? No, actually, I don't. And here I, I feel like introducing but you're a, a Buddhist. Little... You're an actual Well, I want yeah, – okay. So the argument would be, yeah, but you chose Buddhism and in your darkest moments, surely you sometimes question that because you realize your choice could have been other. And it's true that there's something that what you were talking about, the early Greek philosophers are always worried, like, do I have the right teacher? Am I following the right school? That is something that I think a lot of Buddhists probably, especially, you know, nouveau Buddhists, people like me who are not coming from a Buddhist family or Buddhist culture, but are arriving at Buddhism, right? Like, I think most people in that situation do go through a phase of being like, wow, did I end up in the right place? Zen Buddhism seems pretty cool, but what about Tibetan Buddhism? They've got all this cool shit that we don't have. And yeah. like, you know, this teacher's really great, but what about that teacher? He seems pretty right on and illuminated and shit. But I feel like that's a stage that you go through. I actually think that that's not the worst thing in the world. Maybe that's just part of growing up. Maybe that's something you do in the infancy or adolescence of your spiritual life. I certainly went through that. And I'm not there anymore and haven't felt that way in a really long time. But I do want to just put this in like in light of my own experience, it's like you and I might be different. It's possible that you and I are not exactly the same, JF. We've talked really? about this before. Yeah, it's just possible. Well, we talked about this in the William James psychical research episode where we arrived at the conclusion that you grew up in a magical realist world, whereas I grew up in the world of cold facts and reason. Except my world, the magical world is the real world, as you now know. Right. And I was just <laughs> d dwelling in illusion all that time. But, you know, it's funny, all of the stuff he says about cross pressure, I remember that condition very well for a long time. I mean, I grew up in a, I mean, a rather odd religious household because my father, as I say, was like, a, not just an atheist, but anti-theist. And my mom, it's not terribly religious, but she definitely thought that going to church was something civilized people did. So right. I was baptized and confirmed in the Anglican church. And so I have some Christian background, but you know, I dropped that. You sang age. in the choir. I sang in the choir and... I dropped that at a certain point because I just stopped, I don't know, it stopped being compelling to me. It stopped meaning something to me, whereas formerly it did. And then throughout years of my life, for example, when my father died, 
I would find myself at exactly the path that I was describing before, where all this time I've been able to kind of table the question of religion, just not think about it. Maybe every now and then I feel like a, a kind of a vacancy, an ache in my soul, something not there. But most of the time I'd be like, you know, whatever, getting on with my life and finding satisfaction in the various things of life. And I did, in fact, encounter situations, some of them dramatic, like my father's death, and some of them not dramatic at all, where suddenly I'm up against those questions of like, yeah, but what is all of this for? Hmm. And in those situations, I did feel this kind of cross pressure insofar as there's something missing from my life, but what it would take to get that back would mean to go just decide to go to church and arbitrarily just sort of decide to table all of my intellectual objections to Christian faith, which felt like it's like tickling yourself or something. Can you really do that? Can you really just decide you're going to believe something? And I can tell you that this was something that tormented me for a good long time. And why was Zen Buddhism different? Because it's a religion of gnosis. That for me was what put paid to this shit was gnosis, was experience, the experience of meditation. And of course, the way that infuses every moment of your life off the cushion. But the experience of gnosis, we've talked about this before. I forget which show it was, but we're talking about how in gnosis and mystical states, there's a certain kind of knowledge that's not amenable to words and that is kind of self-validating. Yeah. Well, that's what gnosis is, right? Yeah. It confirms itself in ways that obviously Pendulette would be very angry if he heard me talking in this way. Oh, he'd be. He stopped listening a long time ago. (laughs) uh, Maybe he still hate listening. But you see what I mean? Like for me, there's a kind of a, a way of breaking out of this. And for me, it's like it started with gnosis, which very quickly led me to feeling myself in this world, this field of forces. And this led to a kind of an unbuffering of myself that was not entirely voluntary. It was like more like stripping away the layers of bubble wrap that I had sort of unconsciously wrapped myself up in. But that was not a project of this self. That was me growing the fuck up and realizing yourself as an entity in a field of entities and that these are things that can compel our fear or our respect or our love or our devotion or whatever, but that you are just open to that field and dealing with it the way you're dealing with the various people that you meet in your life. I didn't have to try to re-enchant, you know what I mean? Like re-enchantment just sort of happens once you start paying attention to your motherfucking experience. Once you start observing, being observant, being religious. And you can be, I mean, I have a tremendous respect for deeply religious atheists, people like Albert Camus, whom I think was a deeply religious man and yet an atheist. It, it's a matter of unbuffering yourself, I think. Exactly. And Camus' essays on nature and on the landscape of his homeland of Algeria and all that are deeply moving in a very religious way. You know, it's like that pilot song from 1970s. You know that, uh, I don't want to sing it. Maybe we'll put an excerpt. Uh, the words are... I don't it, know the song it, you're talking about. Yeah, it's magic, you know. It's oh, like, that uh, song. Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, it's magic, you know. <laughs> that one? Yeah, Never yeah, believe yeah. it's not so. That song is making a profound statement. It's saying, you know it's magic, 
and it will only cease to be magic if you decide to believe it's not. Gnosis comes before faith. That's why Gnosis was always framed in terms of anamnesis to the ancients, like to the, the Neoplatonists and the tradition out of which Christianity evolved. Unforgetting. It, unforgetting. The world is magical. Remember it. Yes. You see, the problem with the idea of disenchantment is the idea that the world was already kind of disenchanted. We just had to do that ourselves and come to that realization. And right. to be fair, Taylor is totally 180 degrees opposite that. But I feel like the basic shape of that thought still governs his thought because what we're talking about is just like let yourself be unbuffered and see where that takes you. But there's so much of an idea of like, well, there's no unbuffering. Right. It's, just it's, there. It's done. Right. It's right, done. Right. And I don't believe that. And I don't believe that the opposite of the buffered self is just choosing randomly to believe in gods and shit. It's about leaving yourself no, open. No, no, I totally agree. No, it, and there are many, many roads. And I, I'll add, they all lead to Rome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> That's what they say. Um, no, no. I, it, but no, but just talking about the axial thing, I do think that there are turnstile moments as we've discussed before. I do believe that the actual gnosis, I think that was a gnosis. And a gnosis is a turnstile moment. It's a subway turnstile moment. Oh, Once it was for had, me, yeah. certainly. I can't go back to this naive, like fucking village atheist worldview I used to have. Right, right. I think that the actual age, which gave us Judaism, Zoroastrianism, Taoism, Buddhism, the Upanishads, the whole kind of world religion of which all of these are kind of tendrils is an important development that I think we choose to negate at our peril. But the thing is that I don't think that that great axial development negates the polytheistic universe of a multiplicity of forces and gods as the example of any of these religions will demonstrate, you know, like Buddhists believe in all kinds of entities, all kinds of enchantments, all kinds of forces at work in nature that need to be reckoned with by the human being. We're not alone in the Buddhist universe, just like right. we're not alone in the Absolutely. Catholic universe. We're not alone in the Zoroastrian or Hindu universe, certainly not in the Hindu universe or the Jewish universe. All of these universes, if you, for a moment, if you just try to just ignore for a second, the arrogant cynical barrier that's been erected between what constitutes folklore in these religions and what constitutes the actual faith, uh, then the world just becomes enchanted again. And the great thing is that the people who founded these amazing spiritual religions, spiritual paths, have given us a tool to find our beacon, find some kind of way through this multiplicity. We're not just the proverbial pagans lost in a world of forces that one can only react to with fear. Right. Uh, we, have, we have discovered Anthropos. Anthropos as an archetype that allows us to see as though we were gods. Modernity is not wrong that there's something divine about the human. I think there yeah. is. But it's, the human is, at best, one god amongst many. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, 
And, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>